Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, January 15th, and we're talking about Conceito Gambling. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool senior contributor Asit Sharma via Skype. How you doing, Asit? Great, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Asit. You know, we're talking about casinos today, so off the bat, I just want to ask you, you know, you gamble at all? What's, what's kind of your favorite game? You do any of that, uh, any of that sort of thing? So, uh, when I was a younger guy, I used to um, gamble a little bit with my friends playing cards. Uh, I have never been much of a gambler, but I do want to uh, put in that I'm fascinated by gambling and its relationship to markets. I think I had talked uh, one time on the show about Victor Niederhofer, who's this fantastic speculator who's made and lost many fortunes. But he's got an interest in race courses and uh, professional games, betting on them, and how that relates to speculation in the market. So I've got a sort of an academic interest. I'm so bad at gambling. That's the problem. I probably lose too much whenever I do try my hand at it. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I like to play a little blackjack every now and again. And, uh, you know, you know, I've, I've placed a sports bet every every now and now and again uh, in my day. Went to Vegas for the first time last year. Had a good time with my girlfriend. Saw the Britney Spears show down there, which was like an, a live in person uh, music video. So that, that was a good time. So I have a good time with gambling. Uh, you know, uh, as kind of a pastime. Of course, always have to enjoy it responsibly, just like uh, they say in the beer commercials. So, um, but we picked a good week to talk about casinos, Asset. Uh, you know, we hadn't planned this, but just in the past week, some news surfaced that we've seen some activists uh, taking stakes in the major U.S. casinos. So we have activist firm Starboard Value is port- reportedly building a stake in MGM Resorts. And then Carl Icahn, everybody knows Carl Icahn, one of, one of the largest activist investors out there, is reportedly, reportedly taking a stake in Caesars. Um, Icahn does have some con- casino experience. He, he sold a $1.5 billion stake in Tropicana Entertainment in 2018 and also uh, has sold the t- Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City to the Hard Rock uh, uh, you know, last year as well. Um, and this isn't the first interest we've seen in Caesars. So earlier this year, Tillman Fertitta, who is the owner of the Houston Rockets and Landry's, which also owns the Golden Nugget uh, Casino, Morton Steakhouses, um, he offered $13 a share in cash and stock for Caesars in October, but that offer was turned down. So we've got a lot of sharks circling around uh, these major U.S. casino businesses. Asset, uh, what do you? What is your 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 take on all this activist interest kind of uh, coming out recently? Well, first of all, Nick, I want to say that I think all these activist investors got wind that you and I were going to do uh, a podcast episode, and that's why their interest suddenly peaked up, and that's you know why <laughs> we're hearing this in the news cycle. <laughs> um, let's start with MGM. So apparently, the stake was built in the last three months. I took a look at uh, Starboard's most recent 13F filing. That's a filing that big hedge funds and private equity groups um, have to do for disclosure that shows their institutional holdings. And they didn't really have an appreciable stake as of their their last reporting period, which ended 9.30 of 2018. So uh, in a few weeks, we'll see what their holdings were as of the end of the year. Um, But interesting, as Starboard was putting this position together, MGM management was probably polishing off uh, the final touches on a plan to free up about $300 million in EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, uh, just out of coincidence or management having the feeling that uh, it's possible if they don't improve their profitability and earnings structure soon, 
there could be some activist interest. Uh, Starboard, as its name applies, implies Starboard value, it's a value investor. So they tend to inquire, acquire companies which um, are beaten down in some ways. This is not one of the uh, activist investors that tries to have an adversarial relationship with management teams, but it, it often has big plans for companies that it takes significant stakes in. Um, one that I wanted to talk about, which was also uh, announced after the year turned, was Starboard's uh, stake in uh, Dollar Tree, which owns Family Dollar. So just to give you an example of how this hedge fund operates, uh, they want um, Dollar Tree to sell off Family Dollar, which it only acquired three years ago because it's been a money-losing proposition for that company. And it wants the Dollar Tree brand to expand its price points uh, from $1 to multiple price points. So big changes. And that gives you sort of the flavor of how this company uh, might tack on uh, as it tries to influence management at MGM. Uh, Basically, going forward, there's not a lot for MGM left to do. Many times these companies want management to buy back shares, uh, and that should increase stock value, but MGM is highly leveraged, so I don't see much uh, that can go on in that manner. Now, on this next idea, which is Carl Icahn's interest in Caesars, that's also interesting, should be fun to watch. Um, Carl Icahn uh, of Trion Partners is famous for producing these voluminous white papers, 80-page, 100-page white papers, which argue for a big change in the companies that he takes stakes in. I don't know if we'll see that um, with Caesars, but Caesars, again, is another company uh, which has a lot of leverage on its balance sheet. It just came out of bankruptcy uh, recently. So Icon's a master at finding every last penny of value. I'm going to be interested to see how this one unfolds. Uh, Any thoughts from you on on either of these? Yeah, I I think, you know... (sighs) It's hard to tell because you know the, the big kind of catalyst that we saw in the last year that it, you know at least in the gaming space is sports betting and that part part of what's going to happen there is going to depend on what we get from a regulatory point of view. We, we've seen uh, we saw the Justice Department came out with it with revised their opinion on how the um, oh excuse me what what is the hold on one second. Oh yeah, yeah. The Justice Department came out with with a new uh, stance on how the Wire Act should be applied to online gambling just yesterday on Monday afternoon, and so that's going to affect the ability uh, uh, for some of these casinos to roll out uh, kind of uh, casino like games um, through their apps and things like that. So it, there's some regulatory hurdles that that look. Like it's creating a little bit of a special situation for these businesses that you know maybe the activists see something in the tea leaves there that they can kind of pull the thread on. I I, I do think when you look at the leverage of these companies, it, it, there's got to be something to to kind of address those issues. You've seen some interesting things uh, uh, with the kind of real estate arms of both MGM and Caesars. I, I I'll be interested to see, and we're going to talk about that later. What role maybe kind of unlocking some value out of the real estate. Uh, might play in what goes on there, but it's going to be an interesting thing to follow. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, as I mentioned, you know, one, one of the biggest news items, at least in 2018, surrounding uh, gambling, what was what went on with sports betting. And so, uh, back in on May 14th, uh, the Supreme Court overturned the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which uh, basically what that act had done was banned sports betting outside of Nevada. Um, I think there was one other state that was carved out that hadn't hadn't used their carve out. Um, so that happened back in May. 
Uh, and we've seen some states move to legalize. About uh, nine states are currently legal. Um, but there hasn't been quite as much movement as maybe some had, some had hoped for. Part of that um, has to do with the way the legislative calendars line up with a lot of these states. So it's because that that federal ban on sports betting through PASPA was lifted by the Supreme Court. We still have to have legalization come at the state level, and most state legislative calendars kind of tend to tend to wind down at the end of May, and it, it takes a little bit of a process to work through um, the bill making. Uh, kind of ma- ma- machinery. So I-, I think with state legislatures starting to come back into session here at the end of January, beginning of February, we might see some movement on continued legalization. Um, let's give you some context on the size of the sports betting market. Uh, $4.9 billion um, was bet at Las Vegas sports books in 2017. And some estimates on the size of the, of the illegal gambling market um, are as high as $150 billion, although uh, based on what I've seen, I think around seventy billion dollars is probably more reasonable. Um, Asit, kind of, w- what are your thoughts, kind of, on these early days of how, how sports betting has emerged and kind of the regulatory environment we're looking like? That so, as we go forward, uh, some of the states which traditionally have gambling operations have been the first to uh, pass through their their legislatures uh, the mechanisms for. Gambling. Mississippi is one, which you'll be very familiar with, obviously. Um, New Jersey, uh, they very quickly moved in 2018 to allow uh, the sports betting. One of the things I'm looking at is uh, this possibility of a federal bill coming up. Uh, The Sports Wagering Market Integrity Act of 2018 was sponsored by Senators Orrin Hatch and Chuck Schumer. Of course, Senator Hatch retired in December, so the bill has to be reintroduced in Congress. Uh, now, what I've read is many people in the industry don't think that the federal regulation is going to amount to much after the SCOTUS decision, but uh, two of the big online sports betting or online betting outfits, uh, DraftKings and FanDuel, are certainly monitoring this very carefully. And DraftKings is making preparations just in case. Um, a recent filing shows that they have engaged two lobbying firms to quote, educate policymakers on issues related to fantasy sports and sports wagering, uh, end quote. So as far as the daily uh, fantasy sports getting into this sports betting, they are already um, moving in. And I think that they will work with influencing the policy debate if there is any. But to me, it seems that this is moving forward and more states will adopt uh, this year. Yeah, that seems to be the case. I think it's a battle that's going to continue to play out. Uh, something to call out there is Sheldon Adelson, who is the you know the, the leader uh, of Las Vegas Sands, uh, which is a, 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 a another casino operator. He's also a, a heavy political donor um, and is a heavy supporter of of uh, the coalition to stop internet gaming. So yeah, he has kind of a lobbying special interest organization there. So it's going to be interesting to see the battle between. Kind of him and kind of his his uh, folks on his side of the debate, kind of wanting to kind of put a wall around you know, how how large internet gaming can be, along with these new upstarts like you mentioned, DraftKings and FanDuel. And you know, as we look to how sports betting has played out in this first year, our best data is really coming out of New Jersey. Um, as you mentioned, they had some existing gaming operations. New Jersey was the force behind uh, when uh, behind the Supreme Court case. The original name of the Supreme Court case was Christie versus NCAA. Christie being Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey at the time when that case was brought. So New Jersey was really Johnny on the spot um, 
with bringing this online. And just in the first six more months of uh, sports wagering in New Jersey, we've seen $928 million of wagers placed. And to give that some context, um, that's about half of what Nevada puts together in $1.8 billion um, in in the first six months. That's about half of the the amount of uh, sports bets placed in Nevada, which you know, considering this is coming only six months, you know, with infrastructure not being in place in, until after May, uh, it really has ramped up in, in, a, in a very, very speedy fashion. And, and there looks like there could be some more upside. You mentioned DraftKings and FanDuel, and this is a, an important thing to call out. Of the amount of bets placed on, on sports in New Jersey, of the revenue collected, about two thirds of that sports betting revenue has accrued to uh, sportsbooks affiliated with DraftKings and FanDuel. So these have been very influential players in kind of driving traffic there. And there's a few reasons behind that. Of course, they have an existing user base of folks who are who are comfortable putting money on the line to kind of make decisions surrounding sports that are that are sports fans, and they already have an app in place. Uh, Asit, what are your kind of thoughts here so far on how these, these DraftKings and FanDuel and these other online operators have really been able to capture a larger share of the market uh, than you know your existing legacy casino players. Well, I think uh, the the brand familiarity that you mentioned is a big one. Uh, that these um, both of these companies have loyal followings who've put money, you know, made deposits with the companies, been able to withdraw money on their winnings. That is very important to the online wagerer, if I can use an antiquated term. Uh, you know, this kind of um, Familiar, familiarity with your sports book, the place where you go and place your bets, collect your winnings, and your trust in that, be it a retail or physical location or online, is extremely important in the industry, as you can imagine. Uh, so I think they've got this edge. Um, I want to call out a stat that you brought to my attention, which this is amazing. Um, more than 72% of money wagered on sports in New Jersey in November came via mobile and online platforms. And Nick, I've got your numbers right here. $21.2 million in overall revenue. $14.4 million of that was online revenue versus $6.8 million in retail. So like we see with many other industries that we discuss, if you make it easy for someone to do something online, it doesn't matter what it is. People are going to come. It's very easy to move money. Um, and it is one of the more compulsive industries I, I usually talk about compulsive industries in terms of Starbucks and coffee, but uh, this is that amplified many magnitudes. And as you say, be responsible if you try out online wagering and um, do it as a hobby. I One thing that I'm very interested in in the coming months and years also is what I call capabilities crossover. So, so far, DraftKings, FanDuel, um, and a couple of smaller competitors don't have physical presences. Now, we've seen since uh, the SCOTUS ruling that FanDuel has opened a sports book in Meadowlands Racetrack in New Jersey, um, and DraftKings has opened one in Resorts Casino Hotel in New Jersey, and also at Scarlet Pearl Casino Resort, which I believe is in Mississippi. So as these companies decide that a physical presence will enhance their offerings by the same token, some of the larger traditional casino players like MGM, like Caesars, are looking to partner up with smaller companies and also extend their own online um, capabilities and cross over the other way. That is to go from a capital intensive um, economic structure to something that's capital light. So I think both of these types of 
uh, wagering facilities are going to learn from each other, and we'll see lots of partnering. We'll see lots of M and A. Um, just curious, your thoughts on how that will uh, fold out? Yeah, I said I mean, for me at the end of the day. I think in the states where mobile mobile uh, wagering is legal, it's going to capture an outsized share of the market, as we saw in New Jersey. Uh, the, the question I have on my mind is how many states are going to legalize mobile and online betting? Um, you know, you're going to have concerns of how do we verify the age of the gambler? Um, you know, are, do we really want you know everyone you know being able to place bets on sports you know any place in the world, or do we want to confine it? To a smaller, a smaller arena. Uh, so in Mississippi, you have sports betting, for example, uh, confined only to on-site locations, um, and uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how how the regulatory framework plays out from state to state. So I, I think it's a little bit of a wait and see here. I do think. Uh, the states that do allow online and mobile betting will probably have a quicker uptake on the on the amount wagered amount wagered there. I I do think for sure what we're going to see is uh, sports betting become a larger subset of kind of how people consume sports. So you're already seeing on like ESPN for example, uh, you know Scott Van Pelt on his Sports Center show has uh, has the bad beats segment that he'll do he'll do uh, every night and things like that. So we're having that come into come into more of how, how sports are coverage are covered. Um, and Deloitte had some numbers out I announced I told, uh, sent these out on our end of the year show for IF that uh, Deloitte's expecting that sports betting will drive 40% of all TV watching by men ages 24 25 to 34 years old which of course, is a very important demographic, particularly when it comes to sports. Um, so, definitely can drive engagement there. Another question that we have to ask is like, how profitable is sports betting going to be? So, ba- based in, um, in data we have from Vegas, you know, historically, the house edge on sports bets is about four point six percent. So, out of every hundred dollars that gets bet um, at a, a casino or sports book, four dollars and sixty cents of that comes down as actual revenue uh, to the casino. And then in Las Vegas, when you net out uh, the taxes you have to pay to to um, to the state of Nevada, about three point three percent of that comes down as net to the casino. So another thing that we're going to have to follow uh, from a regulatory perspective is not only how many um, states allow mobile and online wagering, but also what is that tax hook that the states are going to have on the casinos when it comes to their revenues. So. So, for example, uh, New Jersey actually just raised theirs another, I think, one and a quarter percent. Uh, New Jersey tech, uh, taxes brick and mortar sport, sports books at nine point seven five percent, and they tax mobile and online sports betting at thirteen percent. So it's not that bad. Casinos have, have really have really gotten up and running quickly. But if you look at a state like Pennsylvania, where they're they're putting their tax rate at thirty six percent, you've really seen a much slower uptake um, from businesses there. It's just a lot harder to make money. So I think those are the two questions. That I'm going to have. I think I think we know for sure that we're going to get increased engagement um, out, out of sports betting, you know, uh, being legalized. But I, I, how profitable it's going to be, um, and and how large it's going to be, uh, is going to vary on a, on a state by state basis, both on whether uh, mobile wagering is allowed and on whether uh, how the tax rates are set by the states. Uh, what do you think, Asit? I think that the states have become very savvy in attracting business. We start from a global perspective. Uh, just the fight to win business in the corporate world uh, has driven 
more of the use of analytics in recent years that uh, states will use when they compete. Just to pull an example out of the air for, for Amazon coming to a particular city, uh, there's much more data that's being crunched now than ever was before. And I think the states are going to make calculations. Each state that's interested in this market uh, will try to figure out how much um, of uh, sports total market they can draw from other competing um, jurisdictions looking at how likely their citizens are to gamble. In other words, if you're a, a retail gambler and you live in my state, North Carolina, you may have to physically travel to another state uh, to gamble that we have in the mountains, a, a couple of uh, places where you can gamble. So if, if North Carolina were to follow through and legalize, I think they would look at that market and then make a tax calculation as well. So you can fiddle with both ends of the equation. You can incentivize gambling in your state, um, but you can also push these tax rates up or down depending on that demand flow. And maybe Pennsylvania is trying to disincentivize what they've allowed. I don't know. Um, it, it would seem to me that uh, the best equation is somewhere in the middle. You want to optimize your state's revenue. And there's some nuance to that. But I think now with the um, computational power, if you will, that states have at their disposal, which was not the case 10, 20 years ago, we're going to see some nuance in these tax rates. And I'll, it's another thing I'm just fascinated by for this year to see how that pans out. Yeah, I agree with you, Asit, that one major influencer is going to be looking across the border. And if you see dollars from your state going across the border, uh, you know, for sports betting or any other reason, I think that's probably going to be, you know, a little bit of a nudge to states that maybe are more reticent to legalize to really, uh, you know, get on their game and start moving up. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out. Again, you know, for, for our listeners, it's going to be a state by state, you know, law by law kind of uh, dichotomy over time. Um, but I do think the market's going to grow. It's just going to be a question as to how, how this regulation comes down, what it's going to look like. Um, definitely something important to follow, and it's going to drive engagement you know, both, both for sports and probably for, for these uh, casino and gambling companies. Let's talk a little bit about Las Vegas. That's another market that folks think are going to be influenced by this sports betting change. Obviously, uh, for the longest time, you could only gamble on sports in Las Vegas you know, by federal statute. Now, as it opens up more nationwide, we're thinking about you know uh, is that gonna or is less traffic gonna move out to Vegas? Um, Vegas had 38 million uh, visitors last year. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts on, on kind of that that trend and, and what's going on in Vegas generally? I think Vegas has uh, done much in the past decade or so uh, to get ahead of. A potential trend like this, although I'm not sure that 10 years ago this was on uh, their radar screen. But as a destination, it's really changed the way it markets itself. It's gone after corporate business in a huge way. And also Las Vegas has presented itself as a family-oriented uh, destination. So you don't necessarily have to treat Las Vegas as Sin City. You can go there just for a fun weekend. Um, if you like to gamble, you can gamble. Uh, if you just like to stroll around some what I think of as outre architecture with a drink in your hand. You can do that. So it's a fun place. Uh, you know, I've been uh, once as well and enjoyed my time there, you know, gambled a little bit, was there for a conference. So I think that the, the flow of traffic into Las Vegas won't necessarily be impacted. Uh, and I, I think that it's a very adaptable city as well. So Nick, you tweeted out for questions on the show um, yesterday, I believe, and 
actually a friend of mine who's an avid listener, Brandon Stokes, who supplies me with millennial stock ideas. I've mentioned that before. He asked about esports in um, this whole equation of, of legalized sports betting. And he pointed out that MGM actually has an arena for esports betting, which I was able to just briefly look at before the show. But there you go. There's uh, one way that the company, I mean, the, the um, location uh, of Las Vegas can compete with evolving trends in technology. So my thought is uh, probably there's the um, potential for a little bit of temp, uh, dip in traffic, traffic near term, but that resolves over time as it plays to traditional strengths. It's not going to lose huge traffic anytime soon. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with the offset. You know, Vegas is is one of the most popular convention destinations in the United States, and it continues to be so. It had a little bit of a of a weaker year this year, uh, but it's expecting things to come on strong um, next year. Uh, about one sixth of Vegas's annual visitors uh, come via co- uh, convention attendance. Um, Another another thing to think about too is there's new attractions coming there. So I mean, uh, next year I believe the the Raiders are coming to coming to Vegas. That's going to uh, increase some traffic. I mean, who if, if they want to if you want to go to a road game for your favorite uh, football team, I think Vegas is going to be one of the top destinations you'd like to go see your team play. You saw the same thing happen this past year uh, uh, with the Golden Knights, right? You have tons of folks come in, come down to Vegas to see their team play. So that's that's going to be an attraction as well. Um, one thing to call out, uh, too, to mention, when we're talking about Vegas, who are we talking about? And really, the, the two main players there in Vegas is going to be MGM and Caesars. They they have they own about half the strip. Um, there are some other smaller players there as well. So Las Vegas Sands, we mentioned earlier, they're predominantly uh, located in Macau, but they do have a couple casinos in Vegas. Same thing with Wynn. And you know, as we're talking about Las Vegas Sands and, and Wynn, let's talk about Macau and, and, and what's going on there. Um, so we mentioned Vegas is the, is the biggest uh, gambling market in the U.S. domestically, but Macau is the largest in the world. It is the only place uh, in China where, where folks are allowed to gamble, and about 70% of their visitors uh, came from China, at least according to the data back in October. Uh, there's 41 casinos there, the major, uh, you know, several different operators, uh, several different Chinese operators. The major U.S. companies are uh, Las Vegas Sands, as I mentioned, um, Win Resorts and MGM Resorts. Um, wh- what are your thoughts about what's going on there in Macau uh, and just that market in general? I mean, it's the largest market in the world. It's most certainly the largest market in Asia. It's really been a place uh, where folks have flocked in to, just because there's not a lot of other alternatives. Yeah, so, an example of a great long term market, it's ideally situated. Here you go again. Regulation has ensured that Macau uh, has its own built-in cash cow because there's so few places to gamble uh, in Asia. Uh, And looking at some stats, 70%, you mentioned uh, the Chinese market, 70% of Macau visitors came from China in October. Uh, Visitors grew 15.3% year over year. Um, I find it fascinating that uh, even though we've got more international players now, it's still dominated by SJM. Um, the Chinese company, which has 20 casinos. And as this trade discussion has uh, really turned hot over the last six months and turned really from a trade discussion into a full-blown trade war, you have to really factor that in when you look at the Macau market going forward. Uh, so we see that we have several 
casinos with ex- concessions expirations coming up in 2020. SJM Holdings uh, is up for renewal. MGM China is up for renewal. And in 2022, we've got Galaxy Entertainment, Win Macau, Melco Resorts, and Sands China. So we talked a little bit about this before the show in, in our uh, back and forth, our notes. Um, Nick, you had mentioned that a very well-known short seller is short on uh, the American players in Macau, and, and this has something to do with the regulation, Jim Chanos. So can you uh, just give us a brief overview of his opinion of uh, Las Vegas Sands and win and, and betting on them in China? Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I'll give you give you his thesis, and then I'll, I'll maybe add a little editorial of my own. Um, yeah. So, so Chanos's opinion here is that uh, over the long term, we've seen the U.S. operators in China, U.S. casino operators, trade at a premium uh, to the to their Chinese counterparts. Um, but his, his position is that with the kind uh, of, of trade tensions we've had between the U.S. and China. That, that there really shouldn't be at least there should not those companies should at least not be trading at a premium to those Chinese operators and, and the risk to them is um, is that if China were to decide to pull their concessions at any time their business falls apart if, if you can't offer offer your your key service to that market which is gambling um, then uh, you know you don't really have a business and uh, so the, the companies that he is short are Win and Las Vegas Sands. Um, and so, when you talk about politically, it might make sense for them, for them to retaliate uh, against U.S. operators if trade tensions were to continue. As I mentioned earlier, Sheldon Adelson is the top dog at, at uh, Las Vegas Sands Corporation. He's a heavy donor uh, uh, to the Trump administration and to, to Republican uh, politicians in general. Um, so, you layer you layer on top of there, there's trade tensions between the U.S. and China, and that the head of one of these companies that that is very heavily involved in Macau and that has concessions coming up is also heavily connected to the administration, which China would be be retaliating against. It doesn't shock me uh, uh, that you know that those sort of things would come to pass. Um, what, what do you think, Asset? I think that uh, there's a reason that these companies actually trade at a premium to their Chinese counterparts, and that's because if you're centered in Macau, that's your only uh, real operation. You're, you have a concentrated market. So if uh, primarily the Chinese economy, but other South Asian econ- economies, if they start to decelerate, let's say in a global recession, if you're only based in Macau, then you're going to get hit proportionately harder. So some of these other international companies, US companies in particular, are a little bit more diversified. So there are some underlying reasons why historically... U.S. companies have traded at a discount. Uh, I think, personal opinion, that at the end of the day, uh, the trade disputes will have to resolve because China and the U.S. are just too important to each other not to resolve them. And I think in Macau, my expectation is that Las Vegas Sands and Winds are going to have their licenses renewed. Um, So I wouldn't be short these two companies just for this reason, for their operations in Macau. But I I think it is an interesting thesis, it's certainly a risk. And who knows, uh, Jim Chanos may be right and make a pool of money off it. One last thing I'll say about Macau is just the outlook for 2019. Because of all this uncertainty, uh, JP Morgan analysts uh, predict that gross gaming revenue is going to increase by only single digits this year. And Macau is sort of, if you look around the world, it's the go-go place for gambling. It's got high revenue increases almost every year. They're in the double digits. So 
we're going to have uh, what's a relatively slower year in 2019, but the same analysts, among others, expect that after we get past this period of renewals, and, and even sooner, the growth is going to pick up again. Yeah, I said I wanted to follow up on on, on what you're saying about Dimchenos. You know, it's always dangerous when your investment thesis fall you know hinges upon government action of any kind, whether you have to have a law passed or or some policy change. Um, so I I think it, it, it building a thesis around that sort of thing is a very high level uh, type of bet to make. That there's just a lot of various outcomes. So I I wouldn't recommend anybody uh, take a position in any company. Or any market that is dependent solely upon a government intervention to make that thesis come true, um, you know, we'll see how it plays out for for Mr. Chanos. He, you know, he is he's a very sophisticated investor. Um, but just just for our listeners, that's tip, typically, at least for me, is a is a is a no go, uh, uh, you know, t- type of type of thesis on a business. One last thing before we start talking about these major U.S. casino operators on the back side of the show, um, we mentioned how. Uh, Macau is really has been for the longest time just the center of the Asian gaming market, and there are some signs that we ha- might have some new markets opening up over in that region. So in 2019, Japan is expected uh, to approve three new casino licenses, and so we've seen several operators kind of circling around them, trying to go after those licenses. Among them, uh, I believe you see Las Vegas Sands, and you're also seeing Caesars kind of circle for that. Caesars doesn't have any presence in Macau, so there is a little bit of a, you know, a want for them to get some exposure over there. And then as well, we're we're starting to see uh, some pushes for casinos in Vietnam, um, and Las Vegas Sands has some interest over there. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on on those those markets as opportunities for for casino operators, as well as you know any kind of second order effects they might have when it comes to uh, Macau. Primarily, uh, Japan is the market to look at. Uh, the population there is extremely hardworking, as everyone knows, and the Japanese love their diversions. Whether it's uh, in the youth uh, dressing up in crazy ways um, or playing pachinko, which you pointed out to me, uh, five million Japanese people are addicted to pachinko, this pinball-like game. Uh, I've had the opportunity to go to Japan, and I've seen these um, pachinko parlors. They're sort of incredible, very noisy, (laughs) uh, frenetic, but you can see how that's uh, maybe a relaxing enterprise after you spent like a 12 or 15 hour workday. So I think that there's a huge potential there, both because Japan is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, has very dense population, and as I've said, that population is always looking for an outlet. It's an extremely attractive market for any of the major players and the ones, as, as you mentioned, like Caesars, who aren't in Macau. So I think that's the one to look at. Vietnam, I'm also very interested in. You know, as for the effects for Macau, I think that uh, as time goes on, as we've seen with the greater Chinese economy, uh, there will be some uh, loss of revenue uh, as other players come in, other countries come in, and their regulations change and they allow more gambling. But to do that, you know, you, you do need um, to have a relatively uh, wealthy investment base, and you need capital to make it happen. So it won't be overnight. Uh, Macau, long term, like Las Vegas, will have staying power, and it has a first mover advantage in that region. Um, but I, I do. I'm keeping my eye on Japan. I just think that's a fascinating market. It's going to be highly regulated. 
Uh, so these changes won't happen overnight. The Japanese will be very careful in how their population responds to gambling and also how they regulate the foreign countries coming in. Any thoughts uh, from you on, on how uh, Japan or, or Vietnam might affect Macau? Sure. Uh, I, I think obviously when you have different alternatives, uh, it's going to reduce the amount of need for someone to go out of their way to travel to Macau. So particularly among the Japanese market, you know, I have I don't have any data on what segment of of the market in Macau comes from Japan, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's a meaningful amount. Um, just to kind of give give a little bit extra color on what you're talking about from Japan from an opportunity perspective, some ep- estimates ha- have the Japan casino market at being 15.8 billion dollars a year. Compare that to Nevada; it's 11.1 billion dollars. So that's a significant market. You also mentioned kind of efforts to kind of keep under wraps. Uh, you know how 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 I guess big casinos can get and the kind of uh, societal problems that can come along. So there have been talks on on putting caps on how many visits. Uh, a, a Japanese a citizen can can give to a casino in a month, uh, you know, limiting the size of the casino to only three percent of the total area of the resort. So really confining how much uh, you know gaming space you can have, and then you know putting a thirty percent tax on gaming. So you know it, it's a huge opportunity that all these casino operators you know want to get a bite out of, but it's still to be determined you know, how big that opportunity is going to be. And again, as we mentioned for sports betting, that all is going to come down to what the exact regulations look like and how these operators can navigate them. Okay, on the second back of the show, on the second half of the show, excuse me, we're going to talk about Caesars and MGM. But first, a message from our sponsor. Making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success in the new year. But a lot of people are wondering where they can go to find that right person for their job. That's why when it comes to posting your job, Go where you can have access to an engaged community that people visit every day, and that community is LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder a hire is made every 8 seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Asset. So let's swing into talking about some of these major U.S. casino companies. You know, there, there are an innumerable number of operators out there and, and, and sub operators, but let's talk about Caesars and MGM. And first off, let's talk about Caesars. Uh, so Caesars, you know, we mentioned at the top of the show, they came out of bankruptcy in late 2017. Um, there's really been, you know, a, a lot of questions around the company. Their CEO Mark Forsora announced a couple months ago, back in November, that he was going to leave the company effective February 8th, which, looking at my calendar, is only a couple weeks away, and we don't know who who the heir apparent is going to be. Uh, their their balance sheet is still kind of showing side effects from their bankruptcy. Uh, you know, to give some background on the bankruptcy, it was an $18 billion Chapter 11 filing. It took two years from the start to finish. Uh, they shed $10 billion of debt and then totally reorganized their business into a, a, a realty operation, which now trades publicly as the Vici Properties REIT, ticker VICI. And then we have, you know, Caesars Holdings, which is the kind of the casino operations, the hospitality part of the business. And you called out to me, Asset, kind of an interesting. Uh, phenomenon with their balance sheet that's kind of a, 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 a little-known area of accounting uh, when it comes to the failed sale leaseback transaction, which governs uh, the, those real estate assets that Caesar spun off to VT Properties in the bankruptcy. Can you walk us through what that means and kind of 
what difficulties it, it, it provides to investors really trying to analyze Caesar's books. Sure. And listeners, uh, I'm going to take some a little bit of time uh, with this because uh, there are some of you out there today that probably own Caesar's or are interested in owning it. And um, I wanted to commiserate with you. Uh, I happen to be a CPA and I had trouble figuring out what the heck is going on with this balance sheet. But let's break it down and I will try to um, tweet out a link uh, in a tweet to, to summarize what I'm going to talk about if I lose you. But basically, uh, um, Nick, you mentioned that uh, Caesars had created a, a separate entity which holds its real estate. Um, that's VC Properties. It's a real estate investment trust. And it was able to take basically the $10 billion of debt and put that into the trust along with the properties. Uh, when the company uh, first envisioned this, they envisioned that this would work as a sales leaseback transaction. And that simply means that I own a property, I sell it to you, Nick, but I still want to stay in the property so that I start paying you rent. <laughs> and so it's a very common uh, type of transaction. You see it a lot with professional services, like doctor's offices will do this to unleash, unleash equity um, in their buildings once they have paid off their buildings. Um, but what happened was, uh, after the transaction, Caesars realized that because of certain covenants within the lease terms, they could not account for it as a sale leaseback transaction. So they account for the real estate now as a failed sales leaseback transaction. Just what it sounds like. It's an actual accounting term that they're using their filings. And so in this failed leaseback transaction, Caesars is actually required to keep the sold real estate assets on its own books um, at their originally booked value. So if you look at both balance sheets, it looks like the property's never moved. It's sort of an accounting quirk, but um, because the payment stream didn't fulfill certain accounting requirements under GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, it has to be done this way. So looking at that balance sheet, as of this latest balance sheet date, there's roughly $10 billion of what's called a financing obligation and $8.9 billion of long-term debt. So that $10 billion of financing obligation is exactly the same number that Nick mentioned earlier that they supposedly shed and put over into the other company. They they have to account for all of their lease payments going forward for the real estate as a so-called financing obligation. But it's simply, um, you can think of it as more long-term debt. Now, the quirk comes when Caesars makes a rental payment. Every time it makes a rental payment over to VC's, VC Properties for a, um, let's say, a casino that it's operating and occupying, it actually does it a little bit like you or I would for a mortgage payment. It writes the check, it books part of it to a principal payment and part of it to interest expense. The only problem is, as this um, failed lease back transaction uh, is highly technical. The values of the properties on both uh, the entities' books, that is VC Properties and Caesars, is sort of different. So they have to book excess interest and excess depreciation expense they normally would. And what all this means is that if you look at the interest expense um, on Caesars' books, it's through the roof. I looked at the first three quarters of this year, they've booked a billion dollars in interest expense in nine months. So not all of that is actually true cash paid for interest. So how do you figure out how leveraged this company is? I have a simple formula. I'm going to walk through it. Again, if you're interested, 
if you're still awake and still interested after this show, I'll tweet it out so you can follow this if you're a shareholder. But basically, um, I think the easiest way to figure out how to look at this debt is to take the company's EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, reduce that by the actual cash paid for interest that Caesars has uh, incurred over a given time period, and then reduce that by the actual rental payments they are making over to VC, plus any principal payments on their other debt. And that gets you closer to figuring out how the company is burning its cash. So the net of that so far this year, um, Caesars had $1.7 billion in adjusted EBITDA. And after you remove all those items that I just walked through, they're left with about $444 million of capital to operate with in the nine months. So looking at the big picture, the good news is that Caesars is generating enough to meet its interest and also its principal payment obligations and its rental payments to VC properties. Sort of the not so good news is there's not much left in the kitty for this sort of capital intensive um, expenditure that a casino operator has to make in terms of opening up new properties and constantly refurbishing, renovating existing properties. So uh, give them props for being able to come out of bankruptcy and pull this structure and pull it off but be watchful and be wary if you own shares. And hopefully we revisit this later in the year. We'll see how they're doing. What are your thoughts on all, all that that I just walked through? Um, if you are still awake, Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thoughts are that you know these books are just a mess when it comes to trying to understand them as an individual investor. I mean, I think you look at you look at Caesars on paper and you know some of their assets, if you take the position that, you know, over the longer term, we're going to see regulation that that moves more towards on-site betting. Uh, Caesars does have the most robust uh, 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 regional casino footprint of everybody else, uh, but it, that that's the big question I think with all of these uh, casino operators, uh, with Caesar and MGM at the very least, is how do they navigate their leverage situation? Um, it, it's going to be to be determined. We we have used uh, they, Caesars has used. That VT Properties arm uh, to finance some additional uh, acquisitions and, and moves um, just in the past years. So they acquired Centaur Gaming, which is a, uh, I believe, a racetrack and, and some casino uh, uh, facilities in Indiana. And they did that using a sale lease back to VT Properties. Um, so it, it's kind of the, if they can get out of this whole morass coming out of bankruptcy, it's an interesting. Uh, a financing uh, vehicle, uh, the Vici, the Vici uh, business, and MGM has a similar operation there. Um, I, any additional thoughts there, Austin? Yeah, I think that um, some of the the things that we'll talk about uh, with MGM are applicable to Caesars too. In looking at higher margin revenue streams, the company can get in that may be related to the the, the Supreme Court. Regulation that that changed and allowed casino operators to uh, move into sports betting and implications for online betting. So I think that Caesars does have potential. It's just a little tenuous. So there's a value play. I see it as a value play, and I see anyone who invests in Caesars, they're investing in a value uh, company, which is again, I think over the past 12 months, might correct this later, but I believe the stock lost about 66% of its value um, over the last year. 
So it's got potential, uh, or the last two years, uh, excuse me, it's got potential. And I think that with mobile betting, it has a mobile betting app uh, that's centered in New Jersey. This is one of the uh, opportunities it has to increase the, the revenue streams that are coming in. You mentioned the presence of more sports teams in, in Las Vegas. That obviously is going to help. The partnerships with the Las Vegas Raiders and Golden Knights that it has. Um, also the New Jersey Devils and the Philadelphia 76ers and Baltimore Ravens. Uh, so Caesars is an ongoing story. If you're interested in taking a, a position, I would... Uh, take small bites and just monitor it from quarter to quarter. But um, there's so much of the industry that's in flux since last year that there is positive potential as well. So I don't want to mislead anyone um, with the the explanation I had before to say that because of this complex transaction that they undertook, um, they won't be able to come out of their hole. Uh, At the same time, uh, just watch that cash flow and you know we'll see in, in a few quarters how they um, how they're doing. Yeah, I said I, I own a few shares of Caesar myself. Uh, you know I'm not looking to add a significant stake here. You know I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I do think uh, the addition of sports betting will make some of those regional casinos they have a little bit more valuable. This is one extra reason to come there. Um, but we'll just have to see. We've also seen them do a couple uh, non-casino uh, oriented. Move so they're opening, uh, you know, resorts that do not, that, you know, Caesars affiliated resorts um, that do not have casino operations in both Cabo and Dubai. So that's an opportunity to kind of grow their presence. Uh, they do have their total rewards lo- rewards loyalty program has about fifty five million total rewards members worldwide. You know, it, you can tell yourself a story of of you know sports betting driving more people to the regional casinos, incre- increasing. Um, Kind of uh, engagement with the loyalty program, and then pushing people to Vegas. But it's it, it's it's a story that it, it, we're just going to have to follow. And there's a lot of moving parts that we just don't control, and the business doesn't control either from a regulatory point of view. So definitely something to revisit um, later on in the year as things kind of develop. But I will say, not having it, not having a CEO named is definitely very concerning to me. Um, you know that it's been it's been several months. Uh, since that announcement came out, we're a couple weeks away from when he's going to step down, and there hasn't been any kind of clear communication of who that heir apparent is going to be. So that there's a lot of questions around the company right now. I wouldn't be rushing out to buy shares, but I do agree with you that there could be an opportunity, particularly from a value point of view, um, right now as the shares are just really beaten down. Yeah, I just just want to jump in with one really quick last thought that occurred to me. You know, Mark Frisor, the outgoing CEO, you know, he led the company out of bankruptcy. Um, and successfully too. So one would think that uh, there'd be a tighter succession plan, or you know, after all that hard work and successful work, um, th- it would be more transparent and clear to investors what the next step in terms of the CEO uh, succession is. But we'll just have to wait. Yes, we will, Asset. Uh, let's talk <laughs> about MGM for a little bit. And MGM is similar to Caesars in that it's a major U.S. operator. They have, you know, them and Caesars are kind of a duopoly when it comes to the Vegas Strip. Um, they have less regional presence than Caesars does, but their regional um, regional casinos are very powerful. So, for example, you know I've been to the Beau Rivage in Biloxi. When you go to Biloxi, Mississippi, that is the nicest uh, casino there. You know we uh, you know I live in the D.C. area right now at Motley Fool HQ. They have the MGM National Harbor, which there ain't anything near as close to D.C. as the MGM National Harbor, and it's a nice. Casino, and then as well, they have exposure in Dubai uh, with two casinos there. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, what MGM's kind of REIT arm they have, MGM Growth Properties, um, that IPO'd in 2016, and probably was the model behind what Caesars did with, with Vici in, in their bankruptcy proceeding. Um, what do you think about about that vehicle and and just what Caesars? I mean, excuse me, what MGM might be trying to do with that? You know, in the coming years, they they own a significant portion, but they're looking to sell down some of that stake. Sure. So MGM being a little bit better off financially than Caesars, uh, I think the holding the real estate. A holding company is working out a little bit better for them, uh, and they're looking to pull that stake down to um, under 50% in the next three years, and that should get them about $1.5 billion of cash. So MGM, having this in its pocket, uh, I think also has maybe more potential to develop and acquire, but it also has a little bit of uh, a cash flow I won't call it a problem. It's more of an issue that's native to these large casino operators. Uh, it's got to expand its profitability. You know, we talked in the beginning about the activist interest. One of the reasons that activists are interested in MGM is that it doesn't generate quite enough cash flow to do everything you need as a casino. And what I mean is, everyone has to take their operating cash flow and then, um, you know, pay any shareholders for repurchases. Or or dividends if you issue one. I don't think MGM actually uh, issues a dividend. But first, you have to generate positive cash flow. Then you have to cover your capital expenditures. And then there's money left over. And the problem is, again, as as I said earlier in the show, uh, casino operators are continuously acquiring new properties. They are building out additional square footage into properties. They're putting new events and exhibits. And it's just such a capital-intensive business that you got to have high margins. The cash flow begins with high margins. And um, as I said, coincidence that they announced this $300 million plan to improve profitability, or was management feeling the heat that activists might step in? But let's talk about that uh, plan. So $200 million out of the $300 million in savings annually in adjusted EBITDA, and just again, Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So, 200 million will come from operating efficiencies, half of that from labor reductions, uh, i.e., layoffs. And then this last 100 million will come from EBITDA expansion that's tied to digital revenue growth. So, the company has an idea uh, to perform a digital transformation. It's going to reallocate some of its um, annual capital expenditure each year to specific technology advancements that should increase its top line and grow its market share. So this is a mix of elevating guest experience through data and pricing, sort of the digital and loyalty, uh, digital loyalty programs that you mentioned, Nick, and then optimizing its business mix, who it sells to, how much of it is corporate business, how much of it is is leisure business. Um, I think this is important. I just took a brief look at the company's sort of cash flow the first nine months um, of the year. And it's a very typical example. So, um, MGM generated about $1.4 billion roughly in operating cash, but capital expenditures were about $1.2 billion in change. So, again, very much, very little left over there. I'm intrigued by this idea of a digital transformation because it's not tied to high fixed costs. If you can increase that top line just through digital channels, um, if you can get more into the online sports betting game, which I'll ask you to to talk about, Nick, that is free money uh, for a casino operator. 
which is operating again off of a few things, bringing in that total take into a house, but also acting as a hotel operator, also acting as an operator of restaurants. So um, to me, there's some opportunity here if management can execute. And I should point out that they did um, do a similar plan that just ended last year in which they freed up about $500 million over a few years in EBITDA. So um, the potential is there for them to improve this. But what are your thoughts, Nick, on this digital transformation and maybe how that relates to uh, sports betting that can go online for MGM? Yeah, I, I think we've seen MGM probably of all the casino operators has pushed the hardest to make some partnerships in the arena of sports betting. So I think they've announced partnerships with every major sports league with the exception of the NFL, which hasn't partnered with anyone yet. So they've really pushed hard into that arena. You, you, you pointed out the management's emphasis on kind of moving to more, towards a more digital strategy. You know, uh, they entered into a market access deal with Boyd Gaming. Boyd Gaming is a regional uh, gaming provider in the U.S., um, and they're going to share infrastructure uh, for the use of um, uh, to, to promote sports betting between their two uh, their two businesses. And so, what that gives for MGM is an increase in distribution without having to pay uh, for more physical presence. Um, you know, I, I mentioned too that you know their regional casinos. While they don't have as many as, as Caesars does, there really are some crown jewel uh, uh, facilities. You know, uh, like I said, the the, uh, the National Harbor is probably the the closest casino to the D.C. area. They're, they've got one of the only casinos in, in Detroit in that area. Um, so I, I think they, they've got uh, you know good physical presence. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, um, digital looks like where you want to be for the sports market. As we saw that data out of New Jersey, saying the folks. Affiliated with DraftKings and FanDuel have really captured an outsized size, uh, outsized portion of the market. So, you know, I really like what MGM is doing here. I like the assets that they have to to leverage around this sort of thing. I like the partnerships that they've made, and uh, you know, I, I think it's it's just really a, you know a nice looking business. Now, the question, just like with Caesars, is how do they navigate their debt situation? Um, but, but as you mentioned, what's attractive about this opportunity is, is that you can. Grow your business without having to grow, you know, your hard assets on the balance sheet, which I think is attractive. Um, let's talk a little about. Um, so that said, any last any last words on MGM? Uh, again, if you're choosing between the two, uh, both of these companies, so going back to Caesars, MGM, uh, both of these companies have underperformed uh, the broader market over the last year in what's been sort of a cyclically strong era. So, um, just an idea. You could take positions in both, and uh, both could be poised for an upswing unless we get uh, a recession, of course, which hurts discretionary spending. So, again, eager to see all the changes both companies are instituting, which, if they're able to increase those profit margins, investors will finally award them that higher premium that's been missing for the last few years. So, uh, again, the point of this entire show is uh, to pinpoint the changes that are nascent in the industry. And it's going to look so much different with sports betting, online betting, with these um, digital plays in the next few years. I'm sort of getting interested in, uh, I don't own either, and, and looking at these after the show, maybe I'll take a, a position in, in one or both. Yeah, I'd say if I had to choose between these two major US operators, Caesars and MGM, I think MGM has to be the choice here. Um, just because you don't have the management questions, you don't have nearly as many questions when it comes to the balance sheet. They have some value they can unlock. 
um, from their REIT uh, business. It seems to be a little bit more value there for them uh, than what Caesars is having to deal with. I really like what they're doing in the partnership space. Definitely something to watch. As we mentioned earlier, and probably going to mention it as many times as I possibly can, a lot of the thesis here uh, for growth is going to be dependent on what the states decide to do. So, you know, if states take a tack that that is, you know, uh, if they, they their taxes are too high, or if they they constrict the ability to to do to do business online, that can impact the thesis behind these these companies. But I do think it's a trend that we're going to see uh, continue to play out, and I think MGM is of the two, the better position and the one I'd be more comfortable putting new cash into today. Um, I do want to call out before we go away that there are a few uh, businesses that you can invest in that are more of the pure play on the uh, you know kind of gambling uh, software, o- online sports betting side of the business. Uh, so Scientific Games is a partner with Caesars. They've, Caesar has partnered with them to help do their their app and, and run their online sports be- betting uh, platform. Patty Power Betfair acquired FanDuel. Uh, we you know we mentioned FanDuel a bunch today. They acquired FanDuel back in May, right before the right before right after the Supreme Court decision um, for a billion dollars, and and they are, are a major uh, betting operator in the UK, and so that gives them some U- some US presence. DraftKings is still private, however. Um, it's kind of like you know the analogy I would say is that you know the, that you can invest in FanDuel on the market, but you, but you can't invest in DraftKings. It's almost like if Lyft were publicly available and, and Uber weren't out there. I, I'll be interested to see. And what are your thoughts on this asset? Of do you think any of these major casino operators are going to come hunting for DraftKings anytime soon to get that extra you know juice they've seen in in, in New Jersey so far? What are your thoughts on if anybody's going to come after these guys and uh, what that might look like? I think um, Paddy Power Betfair uh, picking up FanDuel, uh, they they snatched that at a good time. Uh, the question for major operators is going to be what what is the valuation, um, you know, for DraftKings? It is a, a pretty profitable company already, and it has access to capital if it wants to stay private. But I, I think they they may we may see someone try to snap it up within the next one to two years while it's still. Uh, something that's within reason to purchase. If you're looking at um, this sort of direct play, I'm really intrigued. I mean, you brought up uh, Patty Power, Betfair, and not as well known here in the states, but have again, they're you know from the UK and have a really solid uh, European presence. And I think they're in maybe the Australian market as well. Um, sort of seasoned operators, opportunistic. Uh, so that's a, a symbol. Uh, PDYPY. That's a symbol to look into if you're interested in the direct plays. Um, but you know, going back to your question, it is possible that DraftKings could at some point have their own IPO if they feel that there's not too much of a, a regulatory burden for them. Um, but because they were, you know, again, have a first mover advantage along with FanDuel, uh, they really have been able to scale across the industry, have you know great margins, very little infrastructure. So why you know why would they want to to be acquired? They if if I were running the, the company, I'd probably want to keep it um, private for as long as possible. What what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Asad. I, I feel like if DraftKings wanted to sell, they would. I, they they really. I mean, I'm, if you remember a couple of years ago, when every ad you saw on ESPN was a DraftKings ad, it doesn't look like they're hurting for cash if they were able to pay for that much in advertising. Um, I think I, I you know I think they they have a. A good opportunity here when it comes to to the online betting market. Again, it's going to depend, you know, uh, what regulations come down the line. Um, 
given given the liquidity situation too around you know or the balance sheet situation of the potential acquirers that we might be talking about, I I, I don't know how they would come up with the cash. It's definitely an interesting thing uh, to think about. I will wanna, do want to mention one other pure play that I also think is interesting to keep an eye on. It's uh, the Stars Group. Um, the Stars Group uh, is kind of really really diversified. I, they own uh, probably the most most common thing you'll, you'll know them for is the Poker Stars brand. They're they're really heavy in online poker in in Europe, and they also have uh, some online uh, betting operations in Australia as well. What's interesting about them is they acquired Sky Betting uh, also uh, back in April. It was a four point seven billion dollar acquisition, so it was a very large acquisition, but that gave them some exposure. Uh, to the sports betting market as well, and uh, so they they are also partnered with the resorts, casino, hotel, with DraftKings is partnered with. So they kind of dipping a toe in the U.S., um, but but they have that you know legacy business over there with poker that gives them some cash. I think there's some growth opportunities there. Definitely one to wait and see uh, what happens. You know, I mentioned you know the question marks around around the latest guidance that the DOJ gave on the Wire Act yesterday. So we'll have to see what, how that plays out. I imagine that's going to be in some litigation. Um, but uh, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far to say uh, in any of these pure players, whether it's the Star Groups, Patty Power, uh, Scientific Games, uh, is something that I would be throwing cash into today. I think there's a lot of variables up in the air on what's going to happen, but I think the opportunity there is significant, and we'll just have to see you know how the regulatory you know uh, things fall and how everything uh, plays out. Yeah, only comment I'll make on um, Stars Group is. Uh, this acquisition uh, of Sky Betting and Gaming gives them the largest active online player base in the UK. And that's something when you're interested in these uh, pure play companies, that's important because it said at the beginning of the show, if you acquire or have that uh, base of players, it's not simply a list or a database that you've got possession of. It's a really important asset because since time immemorial, there's been an element of trust um, in betting uh, you know, between the better and the person who takes the bet or the entity that takes the bet. And these tend to be the, the assets that drive future revenue growth um, for anyone. So I'm intrigued by that. Um, just to break down the revenue by segment, uh, which uh, cribbing from Nick's notes here, but poker uh, it makes up 60% of revenues, gaming is 30%, betting is 6%, um, with the rest to, to miscellaneous revenue streams. So this is another one that's uh, sort of interesting to me. I'm not as familiar with it, but uh, we'll certainly look in a little bit more after the show. Right, and I want to call out too. You know, so ninety percent of their revenue is poker and gaming. However, those have been those are pretty stable revenue bases. The 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 betting the betting subset. I want to say it was up eighty five percent in the past year. Don't quote me on that. I want you to fact check. But but that's where the source of growth in that business is. So you've got some opportunities there. Um, Again, I can't overstress how important it is that you know we're going to see how the regulatory environment plays out. We're going to see what the tax rates are. We're going to see how open mobile and online betting is. But definitely something to watch in the future. Definitely going to drive engagement with these uh, with these gambling enterprises, casino businesses, and it's definitely going to influence how sports are consumed going forward. So, regardless, it's something we should keep track of. And Asset, I hope to have you on here in uh, six months or so as we have more information to uh, continue to break it down and follow up on it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Nick. And I must say, after this show, I'm feeling sort of lucky. Me too. Me too. I need to. I need to go <laughs> throw something down and pick up a lotto ticket or something like that. I will say, you, uh, you know, I like the Saints on Sunday. You know, they're playing. Uh, they're playing in the Superdome. It's real tough to beat them there. But uh, you know, if I, if I was feeling really lucky, maybe I would. Maybe I'd be thinking about the Saints. What do you think, Austin? I'm all in on a 
Chargers Chiefs Super Bowl. All right. All right. Well, Chargers rem- lost last week. Or not Chargers. Sorry. Uh, Rams. Rams Chiefs. Rams Chiefs. All right. Rematch of that Monday night football game that there was like a combined 120 points. Hey, I'm all for it. We'll we'll, uh, we'll revisit next week and see how it plays out, uh, folks. There's your there's Austin's uh, blood bank guarantee lock of the week on uh, on what's going to happen in the in the conference championship games. Asset loved having you on. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks and thanks everyone. Yep. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For us at Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool On.